Are you guys excited for 2024 and the election cycle that's coming? Are you guys pumped? Oh my goodness, I cannot wait to watch you guys. Hey, my job security goes way up in election years, right? Because every all of you all are like stressed and worried and whoa, this guy's falling. They did a they did a survey recently to see how Americans are feeling about the upcoming elections. They gave them seven different emotional conditions, three positive, one neutral, three negative, to describe uh, how Americans are feeling. And the number one, the, the vast majority of people said that their dominant emotion, well, you know, get, put something in your brain here, I want to see how you compare to it, okay? Their dominant emotion is they contemplated 2024 and, and all of the, the, the events surrounding the American presidential elections. They said the number one emotion was dread. Dread. By a large margin. The number one emotion was dread. Last week we saw how uh, 2,800 years ago, this was also the situation in Judah. The prophet Micah spends the first two chapters of the book of Micah saying, listen Israel, listen Judah, your leaders are leading you to doom. Your leaders are leading you to doom. Apparently, in America, even with our decreasing level of spiritual attention and concern about Christ and and the work of God in this world, we're experiencing that same thing. More and more Americans are feeling a sense of impending doom because of our leadership. That's what we talked about last week, and and we're going to develop that a little bit this week. Because chapter 3, if you look at chapter 3, chapter 3 of Micah, really develops chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2 are all about having bad rulers, bad prophets. And chapter 3 really develops that and and, uh, kind of makes it even more vivid. Let me just point out a couple highlights here because we're going to spend most of our time in chapters 4 and 5. But just to begin, look at verses 1 to 4. I said, "'Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel,' Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people, the flesh from off their bones, eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from off them, break their bones in pieces, chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. He's saying that your leaders are cannibals. The political rulers of the people of Judah are like cannibals. They are living off of your life. With me in verse 11, he talks here about the spiritual leaders of Judah. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet then they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Your political leaders are cannibals. Your spiritual leaders are only in it for the money. Look at what he says in verse 4 about the political leaders. They will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they've made their deeds evil. And in verse 7, what he says about the spiritual leaders, he says, The seers shall be disgraced. The diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there's no answer from God. There's no answer from God coming to the political leaders who cry to him. In distress, and there's no answer from God coming to the spiritual leaders who cry to Him in their distress. And therefore, 
Look with me at the last verse of chapter 3. Therefore, because of you, political and spiritual leaders of Judah, Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem as you can see in that verse, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, that is the mountain on which the temple of Israel, of God is supposed to be, is going to become a wooded height. So because of their leaders, they're going to experience destruction and ruin. So, I mean, the big question of Micah, the big question is, why are we following these people? Why are we listening to people whom God won't talk to? What are they going to be telling us? If God is not going to talk to them, they're not any like wisdom or counsel or, or insights, prognostications or, or opinions on what's happening are all going to be without God's voice in them. Why would we listen to them? Why would we follow people? Why would we follow people who are living off of our lives? Like where are they going to lead us, right? Like the situation in Judah, the situation in so many nations is almost like a Hansel and Gretel story told on a large scale. Do you remember this story? The, the two little, you know, German orphans, they run away off into the woods, and there they meet a benevolent older lady who takes them into her wonderful candy house and feeds them abundantly. To what end? Why would we follow these people? Why would we follow cannibalistic leaders? Where are they taking us? They are taking us to ruin, death, and doom. And really, I think the central problem in Judah, and, and I think we'll find immediate resonance for this in, in our Christian lives, is, is described by Micah in Micah chapter 4, verse 9. And I read this as I was preparing this sermon, and, and this, this phrase, this question, just grew and grew and grew in my mind and heart. And I hope that it does the same thing for you. He says in Micah 4, 9, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Why are you listening to these people? Why are you following these people? Is there no king in you? Is there no king in you? I mean, this is a rhetorical question. Micah is reminding them there is a king in you. You don't need to look to the political leaders for leadership and authority. You don't need to look to the spiritual leaders who are not following God. You need to look to your king. There is a king in you. And I want this highlights something very important about the identity of God's people. God's people have always existed around and under God's king. So for them then, and all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, God's people have existed. They've been stewards under and stewards of the promise of God's king. The promise that God would be their king through his chosen king. I know that was a couple layers. Let me say it again. That God would be... He, he gave him a promise that he would be present as their king through his promised king. They call that guy Messiah. And Israel was living with the hope, and they were stewards of the message that they were going to have a king who would be like having God for their king. Would you vote for God next year if he was on the ballot? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? And that was what they were given, to be the stewards of that hope and that promise. 
And so Mike is calling this to mind. He's saying, like, you don't have somebody you can follow? You don't have somebody you can listen to? You don't have somebody to comfort you in your distress when you're being threatened from other nations? You don't have somebody to protect you and give you strength? You don't have somebody who is 100% reliable? Somebody that you can trust in 100%? You don't have that person? Is there no king in you? says, there's a king in you, but you're living like this isn't true. You're living like you need a king. You have forgotten the promise. You have forgotten the presence of God as your king in that promise and in his presence with you. You have forgotten these truths. And so because you've forgotten them, that's where your idolatry is coming from, right? Well, I, I need strength. I need comfort. This is where your immorality is coming from. I need comfort. I need security. This is where your injustice is coming from. How am I going to get ahead in the world? I got to do it myself. I got to put other people down. All of that is growing from the fact that you forgot your king. And so because you forgot about your king, you're listening to and following wicked, unjust cannibals. I mean, they wear a suit and tie and a mean power suit, but... Let's call it what it is, is what Mike is saying. You think you need a king. Our relationship to God as king is one of the fundamental, foundational tensions and struggles that we see throughout the Bible and I think resonates with my life and yours as well today. I mean, all the way back in their exodus from Egypt, right? They're in slavery to the greatest world superpower in existence at that time. And the Lord their God comes and rescues them from that, right? Destroys, basically destroys the gods and the culture of Egypt. Defeats their military. What is God doing? Nobody can see him, right? But he is acting like a king. He is defeating their king. They come into the promised land. So their king leads them out. Their king sets them free and liberates them. They come into the promised land. And their king says, go to Jericho. We're going to beat Jericho. We're going to beat the stronghold of Canaan. And he gives them, you know, the nonsense about walk around seven times and blow the trumpets and all this kind of stuff. Here's the the rules. I want you to obey. Obey me and we're going to beat them. And what happens? What does their king do for them? Knocks the walls down, defeats their entire military. Who led them out of Egypt? Who led them into the promise It was God working for his people like a king. For those of you who maybe know the story of the Old Testament a little bit, you know this comes to be a sore subject very quickly. Because God is working for them like a king, but it's not too long after this that they tell the prophet Samuel, a couple generations before David, several generations before Micah, they tell the prophet Samuel, we want a king like all the nations. Some... Six foot four, hunk of a dude, sitting up on a big charger, taking us into battles and and inspiring courage and commitment from us. And Samuel feels that he takes this personally. He says, they've rejected me from being their prophet. And God says, no, listen, here's what it is. They've rejected me from being king over them. God's saying the nature of our relationship up to this point is that I will be their king. Until Messiah comes through whom I will be their king. And so in 1 Samuel 8, they reject God from being king. It's the same kind of language when we fast forward, we come into the New Testament. Jesus tells, you remember what Jesus tells his disciples several times? He says, listen, the Son of Man, 
who is a kind of code phrase for the anointed Messiah, the king that God promised, is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected. Same language. They rejected me from being. He's going to be rejected by the chief priests and the rulers and the scribes and all the leaders of my people, all the bad leaders that Mike is ragging on now. Jesus says, the Son of Man's going to go and be rejected. And sure enough, fast forward a little bit, and they're right on the steps of Golgotha. Right? They're right on the steps of his crucifixion. And, and Pilate says, uh, should I crucify your king? And the people, are, the people say, we, we have no king except the Roman king, Caesar. He's our king. This is a fundamental struggle throughout the story of the Bible and I think on into our lives. And the message of Scripture is there is a king in you. There is a king in you. We call him Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? Like right, in, Christ almost means nothing. Like just what does it mean? It means Jesus for most people, right? If somebody says, you know, Christ, they mean Jesus, right? It's a way to refer to Jesus. But Christ actually is a word that has a meaning. And the meaning was God's super king. That's what Messiah meant. God's super king. The one who was going to be the king over all kings. And Mike is saying, Judah, that's your king. You're telling me you don't have a king in you? You've got the hope of Messiah. You've got God's presence in this promise. The king of all kings is our king. And so Micah now takes some time to describe this king and his reign in order to motivate Judah to return to and submit to God and to his king. To encourage them to live by faith and then to live faithfully. To live by faith in Messiah and then to live faithfully in doing justice and and forming the beautiful new creation community that God wanted his people to always be. So, so he, he lays out a couple things about this new king. He says, your king's going to be glorious. Look with me in Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Micah 4, 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow from it. Side note, rather than Jerusalem being plowed like a field, right? rather than Jerusalem being destroyed, now it's going to be the center of the world. Verse 2, Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? That he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. We've got all of this flourishing in our world now that this king is here, but we don't have enough implements to harvest it. We're going to have to repurpose all of our swords and spears and arrow tips because we need to reap this bounty. Verse 4, they shall sit every man under his vine. I want to read the last bit there, verse 3. Neither shall they lift up sword against nation, nation against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore, 
But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. Your king is going to be the fountain of the wisdom of God. You've got leaders right now who none of them God is talking to. None of them have the word of God. But you're going to have a leader who delivers God's own word. He's going to be the judge of all the world. He's going to put an end to war and fear. Now, what does chapter 5 tell us about him? Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Classic Christmas reading here, Bethlehem 5, uh, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who's to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Again, so ancient but born, who is this person? He's the one who who is and embodies the strength of the Lord. The majesty of God's own name rests upon him. And his presence means peace. But you don't know who to trust? But you don't know who you should listen to? You don't know, Judah, who's going to take care of you when things go bad? Is there no king in you? Look at the glories. Of your Messiah. Look at the glories of your King. Do you feel that anxiety though? Who's going to take care of me? Who can I rely on? What about this? What about that? We feel the same conditions. We feel that same thing growing in us, just as it did in the people of Judah, which led them to put their hope and trust in fools. To which Micah says, Is there no king in you? Is there no king in us? Our king is going to be glorious. Our king is glorious. And our king will do glorious things. Look with me again in chapter 4, verse 8. There's, there's a lot I could say about all of these different things here, but these are just some of the big highlights here. Look at verse, uh, look at, beginning reading in verse 8. So he says, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. What will come? The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. And he runs through two scenarios about how this overcoming and how this glory is going to come to God's people. He says, first of all, you're going to go into a season of suffering and exile, but out of that, God is going to work an even greater victory. So let's read that, and you pay attention to that theme. He says, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, but there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And he develops this. He says, now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. For he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horns iron. I will make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples. 
and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Your king is going to, through an extraordinary plan, is going to lead you to victory and dominion, and you will overcome. You know, I think the specific context of verse 9 of our our little key phrase here, is there no king in, in you? He says, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? He says, your king's going to do glorious things, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard. You're not going to be saved from experiences of fear and pain. You're not going to be kept away from seasons of dislocation and experiences of loneliness and fear. You're going to go into those things. But even in your suffering, you can trust your king to work. He has a plan that's beyond understanding. You can actually suffer without the fear of pain. Because you're king. Because you know your king and you know his works. And he says all this to to Judah. He says, so why are you worried? Why are you so invested in living with fear and greed and meanness? As if if you don't get it, you don't got it. As if you don't got it, you got to protect it or you won't keep it. Why are you living this way? Is there no king in you? Is there no king in you? And the last thing, which is really important, is that your king is going to make you glorious. There's, again, a kind of a progression here. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the best and the brightest. No, I will assemble the lame. I will gather those who've been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forever. Your king will make you glorious. You know... One of the marks of our king is that he doesn't assemble his people from the best and brightest, but from the lame and the afflicted. Right? You look at most kings in history, and they're sort of propped up by like a homemade ladder of uh, alliances with generals and alliances with nobles and rich people and talented people and, and other nations, and, and they're, they're propped I'm watching a, a documentary on Netflix about the Florida Gators football team in the early 2000s. And this coach comes to the Florida Gators to, you know, of course, bring back the glory or whatever. You know, they're in football, blah, blah, blah. And, and he's this, you know, million-dollar coach. And it, his first season stinks. He's got to go do what? He's got to get all the best players in America <laughs> available to come to his school. And then, then what do they do? Well, of course, well, then they start winning games. That's the natural way to grow and to succeed and to to be the best, is get the best. Our king's a real king. He doesn't need the best. He doesn't need all the the, the greatest abilities and the greatest intelligence and the greatest wisdom. He gathers to him the lame and the afflicted, and he makes them a strong nation who rule over the world as his proxies. There's a real king in us. And we see that, that message then progress into chapter 5. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 7. Then that remnant that we just talked about, that remnant of the lame and the afflicted, that remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. Look at the two things he compares us to. 
They'll be like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there's none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. He says, the king makes his glory. The king is going to make you like dew and like lions. Like dew and like lions. In other words, you're going to be such a gift to your friends. Like dew in an agricultural society, a heavy surprising dew was like, oh, thank God. That's how you're going to be to your friends. And then to your enemies, you're going to be such a surprising terror. (laughs) You're going to be like a lion, like a young lion, hungry and ready to get after it. Why? Because the king is present in you. And I love this moment. I just want to say, I love the progression here. You know, I think all of us have things that we want that as we get older, I've got a birthday this week, so I'm getting, maybe I'm getting a little melancholy. As we get older, we all have things that we feel like, oh, that's, that's just lost. You know, I'm lame and afflicted now. I'm far from home. I'm, I, I don't have it, you know. Or, and what we are seems hopeless. And I'm never going to be that due to my friends. I'm always going to be this other thing. And what we see here is that this says that our king is going to take those who feel lost and hopeless. He's going to take them and he's going to make them great and good. And how does he do that? He makes them his. And he is great and good. Friends, we have the king. Capital T. We have the king in us. For them then, this was the king to come, whose presence in their promises was was the defining feature of their identity and was also to be their guide for life. The knowledge of their king, that that they were the people of the king, was supposed to define who they were and what they did. Right When you lived under the knowledge of this coming king who was going to do justice, who was going to die like a lamb for your sins, how were you not going to be a people shaped by mercy, shaped by doing what's right, shaped by courage and boldness? This is what they were supposed to be. Now for us on the other side of this, of course, the king to come has come. This king talked about here has come and we know his name. (laughs) I mean, they knew it too. His name just means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. We know Jesus. And what, is the, what do the apostles say about Jesus? All the promises of God are yes in Him. All the promises of God are yes in Him. What's our identity? As a Christian, what's your identity? I'm His. As a Christian, what is your compass for making decisions in life? I'm His. I'm His. 1 John 4, 4, one of Jesus' disciples says, Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There is a king in you. There is a king in you. He's glorious. He's done glorious things. He has made us glory. As we remember in communion, just notice this little tension or this little difference here. Right? Our king gave his life for us and gives his life to us. As opposed to the other rulers who are trying to live off of our lives. 
Big difference. All right, so let's reflect for just a moment on what this means for us. Let's start by observing this. If you've got a king in your life, you know what that means is that you've got a king over your life. Right? If, you've got, if the king shows up at your soiree, right, the king's over the soiree. The king, if he's in your life, he's over your life. Kings are at the center of things. And kings are at the top of things. That's where kings reside. Kings don't reside, they preside. Come on. Everything in the kingdom revolves around them. Everything is directed by them. We live under and around our king. So very simply, what should we do with this idea? We should live like we have a king. We should live like we are subjects of Someone who's not yourself. I mean, what would be different if we lived in a real place with a king, right? Uh, obviously, a king like this one. Obviously, there's been bad kings. But if we lived in a, in a kingdom with a good king, what would be bigger parts of our lives? We would make appeals to this king. Oh, king, would you help with things? Would you fix these problems? Would you help me through this thing? It would be more natural to praise our king and be proud of our king. Have you seen our king? Do you know our king? Our king's better than Our king could beat up your king. We would be excited about our king. We would, there would be no question of honoring and obeying our king. We would train our children. We would instruct our neighbors. We would say, you, should, you shouldn't say that. You should honor your king. You shouldn't do that. You should honor our, your king. You would not be trying to subvert his authority or somehow rebel or dishonor him. It would be a fundamental, comprehensive change. I think we've, we've, just, we've mentioned this before, that Jesus changes everything. When we have a king, it changes everything. What would it be like if we had a king? And so I want you to reflect as we conclude, where is Jesus in your life? We said he's supposed to be at the center. He's supposed to be at the top. Does our life revolve around him? To what extent is our life directed by him? To what extent are we living for him? Or do we mostly live like we have no king? Like we, we're, we're, we're always looking for somebody to tell me what to do. And looking for somebody to follow. Looking for somebody that I can attach myself to for protection or for blessing. Now if we have a king, what should we do? And so here, look with me at the last little section of our text, Micah chapter 5, verse 10. Here's what our king says he's about to do. And if your king's about to do it, that's kind of a nice way of saying, get after it yourself. <laughs> Let's get going on it. This is what we're doing. And I want you to notice all of the negative words here. And we're going to end on a little negative note. Because <laughs> uh, that's what's in here. Notice how many times he says, cut off, destroy, throw down, or root out. All right? And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you. I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. You shall not bow down, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey." This guy needs to chill out. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is he's the king. 
right? And these are all things that the people of Judah were looking to and trusting in and relying upon. They were allegiances that they had when they're supposed to have one allegiance. They're the things that they're trusting and things that they're relying on, things that they're looking to. And what this king says is that when I come in, when I lead you to victory, that ends. I think a really interesting question for us. You know, when you, when you get a king in your life, the first thing the king is going to address is uh, competing, significant competing allegiances. Kings aren't great at sharing, historically. And so I think that the big question this text leaves us with is what allegiances would King Jesus get rid of in my life? What, did, what allegiances or authorities would Jesus think are competing with him? What allegiances are competing with Jesus' love? Which is just another way of saying what allegiances and authorities and voices and influences are competing with our joy? Back to that survey of the American people regarding 2024. Do you know what was the emotion mentioned the most infrequently? The, the dead last emotion that people had as they looked forward to contemplating our leadership? Delight. 5% of the people said that they were delighted for 2024. Compare that with, as Nate referred to in his prayer, Psalm 1. Blessed is the one planted beside, the, who, who, who meditates on the Lord day and night, who will be delighted by what he finds there. God's work, our King's authority, is to make us delighted. Friends, we have a King. We have the King. As Paul says, a thousand years later, let every knee bow and every tongue confess. And as Micah would say here, and let every part of your life be changed. Every part of your life set free a little bit, maybe, or captured by this truth that there is a king with us. There is a king with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that this question would abide in our minds, that it would dwell in us richly, and that you, Lord Jesus, would be honored and glorified in us more, as you deserve, for all that you are, for all that you have done, and are doing in our lives. For you are our King, Lord. We love you. We give you praise. And thanks, but not enough. And so, Spirit, help us now, lead us into that joyful fellowship with our King and life under Him. In His name we pray, amen.